God speaks the Bible to us. Uh, let's ask him to be at work. Our great God, thank you that the Lord Jesus teaches us to receive uh, the Old and New Testaments uh, as your word to us. Please do be at work by your spirits as we hear your word preached. Please help us focus and give attention. Please help us hear and understand. Please help us trust you as you speak to us. In the Lord Jesus, amen. I'd forgotten how old Daniel was when all this happened. I think it's partly from Bible story picture books. I think I'm as much younger than 80. It's about 80 when this happened. Why was Daniel willing to risk being mauled by lions? What made 80-year-old Daniel decide to do it? If you live to see it, what will 80-year-old you be like? Cowardly or courageous? Controlled by comfort and convenience? Or controlled by Christ's love? What will make the difference? Well, it will be the same then as it is now. It will depend on how you see things. How you see God, our Father, and Jesus, our Savior. Whether you see everything else and everyone else, as God, our Father, and Jesus, our Savior, show them to you. What will make the difference Monday to Sunday this week And when you're 10 or 20 or 40 or 80. It will be how much the way you see everything and everyone and God who speaks. How much you see in a way which is tuned to what God reveals. The trick to aging well, uh, like Daniel aged well, isn't being like Daniel. It's seeing what Daniel saw. God on his throne. Perhaps you know Christian people and it seems like their greatest passion is past. In their teens or twenties they were full on about godliness and holiness, about Christ's people standing firm and the lost being one. Today, not so much. Are you going to age well? Are you going to finish well? More convinced, captivated, committed, concerned. What will 80-year-old you be like? What will you be like Monday to Sunday this week? Now, if you're curious but not yet committed, you're kind of checking things out, why would you want to start, let alone end, like that? This passage will help us. Uh, chapter, five verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, describe the end of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar kills, the Medes and Persians swallowing up Babylon, they are the new empire. The history books call that year 539 B.C. The first readers uh, called it a few years ago. They were swallowed up too. Uh, Those who were in Babylon, those who were in Judah, uh, were swallowed up. Their their new overlords were the Medes and Persians. 
Darius was their king. It's 66 years uh, since Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel and the others to Babylon. That's where chapter 1 began. Uh, So 66 years plus teenager puts Daniel at about 80. In the hours before Babylon fell, Belshazzar made Daniel third highest human in the Babylonian Empire. Now that empire has fallen. The Medes and Persians are the new empire. Darius is the new highest human. We'll get into chapter 6. It begins with Darius organizing things uh, so that he'll get everything uh, that comes to him as the ruler of the empire. <clears throat> he knows the people who rule under him rule with self-interest. He wants the taxes he demands to make his way their way into his treasury and not get stuck in the pockets uh, of the people below him. So he builds a chain of command. Uh, the kingdom answers to 120 satraps. The 120 satraps answer to three presidents, and the three presidents answer to him, the highest human. Layer upon layer to watch those below them and to watch those beside them, and make sure, end of verse 2, the king doesn't suffer loss. Three, 120, hundreds, thousands, they all had one job, to maximize the king's wealth. And right at the top, just below the king, Daniel is one of the three. Then verse 3. Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king plans to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. It's a bit like chapter 1. Uh, where God gave Daniel and his three friends learning, skill, wisdom, understanding. And the king then, uh, the king who captured them recognized what God had done, recognized their, their wisdom and promoted them. Uh, back then in his teens and now in his 80s, Daniel didn't rise to the top through political maneuvering, deceit, spin, compromise. He rose to the top through through God-given ability and God-inspired integrity. The king is about to make a new chain of command. From the king to Daniel, from Daniel to two or three, to 120, to hundreds, to thousands. And the rest of the rulers really don't like the idea of answering to an 80-year-old prisoner of war. Driven by jealousy? Or is it pride? Or is it fear that he'll uncover their corruption? Whatever it is, they dig for dirt on Daniel. They decide the best way forward is a smear campaign. They dig for the dirt, but there is no dirt to dig. Verse 4. No dirt about what he's done for the kingdom. Because at the end of verse 4, he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. They want to accuse uh, Daniel to Darius, but Daniel has been faithful to Darius. He's done a good job. That's great, isn't it? Daniel, um, Daniel's faithfulness to God shaped him so that he was a blessing to the nation. Uh, blessing the nation wasn't his top value. He lived to please and honor God, but he was a blessing. They can't fault him, but they have an idea. And verse 5, we won't find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. 
He'd done his job brilliantly and with integrity, so they shift the focus. They'll dig up dirt in relation to the law of his God. They all agree a plan, they write a law, they come to the king and say, verse 6, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O God, shall be cast into the den of lions. Darius is deceived. He's thinking, what better way to unite the people of his newly expanded empire than 30 days of ignoring the gods and praying to him? It sends a clear message about the gods of the kingdoms he's conquered. King Darius is the only person you need to bring requests to. When you can ask him, you have no need of asking other people or other gods. But that's not why they're suggesting it. Their real motivation is to cause trouble for Daniel. The king doesn't say it. First night, the Medes and Persians are very serious about their laws. Uh, once this law is signed, it cannot be changed. It cannot be revoked. And the king signs the 30-day law. The trap is set. Now what happens next helps us see that only God can save. The trap is set, but it's not hidden. It's obvious. Verse 10, Daniel is fully aware of what the law says. He knows the king has signed it. He knows it cannot be changed or undone. What does Daniel do? He walks into the trap. Do you remember what his friends did when they were threatened uh, with what his friends did when they were threatened with the fiery furnace in chapter 3? They said to Nebuchadnezzar, the then king, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Uh, Do you remember what they all did as teenagers way back in chapter 1? When the only threat was defiling themselves and dishonoring the Lord? They decided to honor him. Now in his 80s, verse 10, Daniel does what he always did. He went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber to open towards Jerusalem, and prayed and gave thanks. Now, why does he pray towards Jerusalem? Well, centuries before all this, Solomon dedicated the temple he had just completed in Jerusalem. In his prayer, he said, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot continue. How much less this house that I have built? And he says, listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When they pray towards this place, Jerusalem, the temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place. Now, Daniel prayed uh, towards a sacked city, a ruined temple. He prayed because he knows God in heaven 
tears. At this side of the cross, uh, we pray to our Heavenly Father in Heaven. Uh, earthly geography and physical buildings no longer matter. We don't need a building to point us up to heavenly reality because we have a Savior who has gone ahead of us and brings us in with him to his Father's presence. But back to verse 10. Daniel is in Babylon. Uh, He's been in exile for 66 of his 80 odd years. He saw Jerusalem sacked. He's heard his temple was destroyed. The threat of death now hangs over him. If he prays to anyone other than the highest human in the new empire, he will be thrown into the den of lions. He knows it all. And he gets down on his knees three times a day and prays and gives thanks before his God as he had done previously. He knows his circumstances. But he also knows his God. So he prays and gives thanks. Now, I reckon we'll hear the sort of things that he prayed when we get to chapter 9 in a few weeks' time. But in this chapter, we don't hear uh, what he prayed beyond that it's prayer and thanks. But we hear why. We can see why he prayed and thanked. Even with everything that has gone on, that is going on, he knows God rules now and always. So with everything that has gone on and is going on, including the threat of death, Daniel prays and thanks God as he had done previously. (coughs) The presidents and satraps, verse 11, come in order to see Daniel. They see him making petition and plea before his God, and they go to the king. Oh, king, did you not sign this, they say? It says here, during these 30 days, anyone who makes petition to any god or man except for you will be cast into the den of lions. The king says, yes, that's right. It stands unchangeable. And then the trap falls. They tell the king about the man he plans to make second highest human in his kingdom. Verse 13. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, king, or to the injunction you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. The implication is obvious. Daniel must be thrown into the den of lions. The king wants to save him. He's distressed. He sets his mind to deliver Daniel. He labors till the sun uh, goes down trying to rescue Daniel. Now, back in chapter 13, sorry, sorry, back in chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were thrown into the burning fiery furnace, he asked them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? They needed a God who could save them from their king. And God did save them. Now, this new king, he wants to save Daniel. He desperately wants to save Daniel. Verse 14, he tries to save Daniel. But he can't. Darius is trapped by his unchangeable command. 
He wants to save Daniel, but he can't. Verse 15, uh, the presidents and satraps remind the king, no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Daniel broke the law that said he could only pray to the king. It's ironic. The one person Daniel is allowed to pray to can't save him. The law allowed him to, to allowed Daniel to make petition only to Darius. He could have said, "Oh king, deliver me from the lions." But the highest human was powerless to save. Now we don't hear Daniel say anything. He knows not to ask. But we do hear the king say to Daniel, verse 16, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He can't deliver Daniel. So he speaks his longing to Daniel's God, sorry, his longing for Daniel's God to deliver him. He can't deliver Daniel, so he speaks his longing for Daniel's God to deliver Daniel. That's basically a prayer. Like the one we looked at a few weeks ago in Thessalonians, uh, which began, May our God and our Lord Jesus make you. It's spoken to the people with the desire that God in heaven will hear and act. This desperate king longs for God to do what he cannot do. Verse 17, the pit is sealed. The king's own signet and and his lord's signet mark the seal so that no one can open it on their own. With Daniel in the pit, with the lions, we follow Darius back to his palace, verse 18. The king loses sleep. He he skips food and entertainment. Uh, Powerless to save, he is driven to despair. Early in the morning, Darius comes. He's anxious to find out what happened. He calls out, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? He couldn't save Daniel. Has Daniel's God been able to save Daniel? Yes. Daniel answers, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. That angel is like the the fourth person in the furnace. God sent his angel to protect Daniel from harm. Daniel's lifted out of the pit and no kind of harm was found on him. Not Not any. Because he had trusted in his God. The king knows he was played. Uh, The presidents and satraps tricked him. He knows they aimed to do harm to Daniel. They maliciously accused him. Darius brings swift punishment on them and on their entire families. The writer doesn't comment on whether that's just. It's just what Darius did. It shows us the lions are definitely deadly. Uh, They scramble uh, to destroy as soon as the victims are thrown in. 
Yet God was able to save Daniel from them. And Darius gets it. He says what we've been saying. I guess he's had help. Uh, Daniel must have told him some of his, some, some of his history, uh, or Darius wouldn't have said, may your God deliver you, uh, as Daniel dropped into the den of lions. Uh, he wouldn't have turned up the next morning, uh, calling out to Daniel, has your God been able to save you, deliver you? Maybe Darius has read some of the records of things that Nebuchadnezzar uh, spoke after the uh, signs and wonders that he saw. Darius makes his own proclamation to all peoples, nations, languages that he ruled, verses 25 to 27. But this is basically a summary of everything we've seen so far, and kind of an insight into everything we're going to read as we go into the next six chapters. God rules now and always. He is the living God, verse 25, in contrast to the dumb idols. He endures forever, uh, ruling over a world that is, that is full of change. His kingdom will never be destroyed and never ends. Unlike earthly kingdoms and empires which are replaced, 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 replaced. He is over all and above all, always has been, always will be. But God in heaven is not distant and uninvolved. He comes near to his people. Verse 27. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. The king who couldn't save Daniel sees it because he saw God, because he saw Daniel's God save Daniel from the power of the lions. Eighty-year-old Daniel is a lot like teenage Daniel, but more. His courageous stand when push came to shove was because he saw God. What will eighty-year-old you be like? Ten, twenty, forty, eighty-year-old you. The truth to aging well, like Daniel aged well, isn't being like Daniel. It's seeing what Daniel saw. God on his throne. Now we've heard about three crisis moments across 66 years in chapters 1, 3 and 6. <clears throat> Big tests like those come along, came along rarely back then and come along rarely now. The way Daniels and the others respond in extraordinary times, it's just like the way they respond in ordinary times. I think we see that in their quiet determination to honor God in chapter 1. In Daniel continuing to pray and thank God, as verse 10, chapter 6 says, as he had done previously. It's easy to imagine standing firm for Jesus when push comes to shove. But quiet days on our own, 
and shoves that are barely nudges reveal our hearts now. They reveal the work we need our Father to do in us by His Spirit, through His Word, in response to our prayers. So that we'll grow as we age, not wither off the vine. And those ordinary and perhaps even mundane things, in Monday to Sunday, they're opportunities to grow. Right? Growth is faith. Uh, the trust in God that he is able to save is faith. Obedience when the pressure is on is faith. <clears throat> in this list of people of faith, uh, Hebrews includes uh, those who through faith stopped the mouths of lions. How did faith stop the mouths of lions crushing and ripping Daniel? Well, the end of verse 23 is the faith he trusted in his God. Verse 22, his God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. God saved him. Faith in the Bible is trust in God who speaks, relying on him to keep his promises, submitting to his good and loving rule. It's seeing what's in front of us through the lens of the word he speaks to us. It's what Jesus did throughout his life and towards the end of his life. Jesus trusted his father with a trust deeper than Daniel's, a humble trust that became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, with all this horrendous pain and shame and hellish condemnation. He trusted his father, and his father has highly exalted him. Faith in the Bible is trusting God who speaks. It's relying on him to keep his promises. It's submitting to his good and loving rule. It's seeing what's in front of us through the lens of God's words. Daniel spent decades being being tuned to the truth by God who rules now and always. But it doesn't seem to have got any easier. Do you reckon this might be Daniel's biggest test? His biggest temptation? It comes late in life. Satan didn't let up pressure on Daniel and he won't let up pressure on us. We should expect to continue to face challenges to our faith for the rest of our days. Too often I've mistaken, too often I've mistaken a win in one, in one battle for the end of the war, or the end of one attack for the end of the battle, until the day we see Jesus Face to face. We need to keep looking past what our eyes see to the eternal realities we can't see. Don't ever coast. We mustn't let our guard down. We mustn't be defeated because pride, we mustn't be defeated because in pride 
we begin to think we can stand because we have stood. Remember, we stand by faith. We stand by despairing of ourselves and leaning into Jesus. What will we be like as years and decades pass? At 80, if God spares us uh, for that long? After years of triumphs and struggles, joys and sorrows, what will we be like? Well, we'll be rock solid. We'll be full on about godliness and holiness and Christ's people standing firm and, and the loss being won if we keep despairing of ourselves and leaning into Jesus. God our Father in heaven is not distant and uninvolved in our struggles. Our Lord Jesus is at his right hand and brings us near. Their spirit is with us and in us to convince us of the truth of the word they speak to us, to assure us of their love, to tune our thoughts, conscience, will, passions, lives to eternal realities. God rules now and always. He is able to save. Only he can save. He delights to save all who trust his son. We who trust him have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And he who gave it to us will bring us safely home. Lean in and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will continue to reveal what is to us uh, more of yourself and your Son, uh, more of what we are, what we were before you, what we are before you through what Christ has done. Father, please keep molding and shaping the way we see things. Please keep molding and shaping us Father, we ask that you'll use us uh, to be a blessing to one another, that we will grow as deep disciples, as men, women, and children uh, who fiercely hold on to your good word. Father, we ask that we will uh, be faithful, that you'll keep us, that in years in decades to come. We'll look back with thanks for your continued and continual work, tuning our heads, hearts, and lives to the eternal realities that you reveal in your good word. We ask it in the Lord Jesus. Amen.